hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hello, welcome to another episode of Women Worth Knowing. I'm Jasmine Allnut, and I'm joined, of course, with Cheryl Bruderson. And we are here <laughs> in the middle of, yes, another one of our, our series, of That's course. Right. Uh, of course, we're looking at women in the medical field, uh, but specifically, we are in the middle of uh, just looking at the life of Helen Rosevere. And we did episode one, and now we're going to pick up again here in episode two with the call that God gave her. So Cheryl, launch launch us in. Right. And episode one was really about her birth. And she was born within the aristocracy, uh, a very wealthy family, which will come into the second part too. And she she got saved at... uh, with the Christian Union. At Cambridge. At Cambridge. Yeah. And so that's why she loves the Christian Union. For the rest of her life, she will be involved in one way or another with the Christian Union. Oh, that's sweet. And so um, last time we picked up, she was interning at the hospital and she was doing evangelism at the hospital. But while she's interning, she goes to a theater to watch a movie on missionaries. And the movie was called Three Miles High. And it was sponsored by Worldwide Evangelistic Crusade. Who's that? Ooh, that's CT and Priscilla Stud. I knew you I, would know Oh, that. yes, I love that. <laughs> I was, I was so excited just to. What a connection! Uh, yes, to show you the connection. So Helen was so moved that she went to the back table that WEC had and asked if they were looking for any missionary doctors. Well, there was a Dr. Mool there, who you recognize that name too. And he invited her to come to their headquarters in London and see the organization. So Helen went, and guess what? Their headquarters, the school, was on the old C.T. Studd estate. Oh, how cool. That he grew up with. So when his father died, he he willed it to uh, the WEC, and they built the training center for missionaries there. I love the legacy. That's awesome. Isn't that great? So Helen ended up attending, and she was placed in charge of a woman, which her name was Edith Moles, and she was Major Moles' sister-in-law. And she had served in the Congo, and she was dying of cancer. And for the last six weeks of her life, Helen was assigned to her because she was a medical doctor just to help her. And every day, Edith would be praying, and Helen was her constant companion. Edith would be praying for the Congo and for the Congolese, just with everything in her, just praying and interceding. And she would tell Helen story after story about the Congolese and the people in the Congolese. We should probably do a podcast on her. I feel like I've heard a little of her story. We have to. Remarkable woman. Yes. And Helen was, at the same time, you know, Helen's praying about where the Lord wanted to send her. It was hard because every single mission station wanted a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. And so they all thought, Helen was called to serve with them, and, and she didn't know. And in the meantime, Edith, you know, went to be with the Lord. And one day, Helen saw this little devotional, and it was open to Second Chronicles 24, 4, about Josiah's story, about when he restores the house of the Lord. And somehow that, that sentence struck her about restoring the house of the Lord, and she wasn't sure why. But it just was like one of those things like, wow, that's interesting. Well, A friend 
happened to send her a note. It came in the post. And the same verse was in it. It was Second Chronicles 24.4. And her friend said, I don't know why I'm sending this to you. But I really feel this is for you and that the Lord has something to say to you. That's obscure. Totally unusual. (laughs) Right. So then a few days later, a woman from the Congo, missionary from the Congo, came and was speaking at the WEC. And she had them turn to 2 Chronicles 24.4. And she said she was going to talk about the need in the Congo. And she was talking about a mission station there that was in need of restoration and repair. Helen's heart began to pound because this seems to be, is this the Lord? Is this how he's speaking to me? Then Sunday, a visiting pastor preached about Balaam and how the Lord spoke to him three times, but he didn't listen. And the pastor (laughs) ended his message with this. If the Lord speaks to you three times about something, you'd better do it. Oh my goodness. Uh, She could count that the Lord had spoken to her three times. Now, something interesting, Helen was hilarious at the mission school. I mean, her antics were just hilarious because Helen, up until going to the WEC, had never done one iota of housework in her life. She didn't know how to dust. She didn't know how to scrub. She's from the upper class. She was. And she had never done any housework. And most of her training was in housework (laughs) because when you go to a mission station, everything's on you. And they part of the training was just doing all of this housework, Mm, whether it was washing or dishes or helping with the, the cooking. And Helen didn't know any of that. And not only that, it was the bane of Helen's existence. She just did not understand housekeeping at all. And uh, one day she was carrying coffee into this meeting. She was supposed to take the coffee in and she realized they were discussing her. And what they were saying about her was not very promising. Uh-oh. You know, she's she's very stubborn. She doesn't always listen. She's terrible at housework. And so Helen just set the coffee cups down and thought somebody else to take them in because they were discussing her. And so she traded duties. So now she's in charge of hanging out the sheets outside. Well, the wind, it was really a gusty day. And she's out, again, she's terrible at housework. And she's hanging up the sheets and she gets one set of sheets hung and she turns to do the second set. And she hears this whoosh behind her and she turns around and they fall in in the mud. And she had washed them. She had wrung them out. It had been so hard. It's so difficult for This is not like today's washing machines. And no. no. And so she's going to have to do the whole thing again. And she's looking at it. What she doesn't know is those people who've been discussing her are looking out the window and seeing, and they're just like, oh, that Helen. She's hopeless. Oh, you know, she's, yeah, she's hopeless. She might be a doctor, but look, when all of a sudden she sits in the mud with the sheets and just starts laughing, and she's laughing hysterically. She's laughing at herself, and she's just just like, this is hilarious. Like, it's just so bad. I'm just going to laugh. And when they saw her laughing at the tragedy, they said, she is perfect for the mission field. Oh, I love it. And it was the fact that she laughed. She could laugh at herself. Mm. She could laugh at the dilemma and not let it get her down that they said she's totally right for the Congo. So after graduating from WEC, she was sent to Belgium to study French for five months and then um, to study all the diseases um, that were rife in the Congo. So she had five months of French and then five months of studying these diseases. And after that, she spent five months speaking at churches and raising support funds for a mission to the Congo. So she had to be supported. She had to find support, financial support, to even go to this place in the Congo. 
So it took five weeks for Helen to make the trip to the Congo in 1953. She traveled by ship, by car, and then a steamer across Lake Victoria. Here's a fun fact. Ooh, Lake Victoria. Did you know that Lake Victoria is larger than Lake Michigan? Oh, interesting. It's huge. Discovered by David Livingston. Yes, and then <laughs> after she crosses Lake Victoria, she has to then cross Lake Albert hmm. before arriving at Mbambi. And right away, she set to work. Her wake-up time was 5 10. So she's working with other missionaries. She would get up at 5.10 and they would wake her up with a cup of tea. 6.30 was chapel. 7 was breakfast, then private devotions until 9. And then she worked from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. every single day. At 7 p.m., there was dinner, prayer, Bible study, hot chocolate, lights out at 10 p.m. And she was treating about 150 people a day. Can you imagine? Wow. I mean, that's an it's incredible— like Ida Scudder. Yes. It's crazy. It's such a strong workload. Not only that, but she had to have lessons in Swahili and had to go to the Red Cross Hospital 15 miles away to, to have those lessons. And she had to learn more about the parasites because not only was she working with parasites and other diseases, but there were—and you know, bugs mm. and, you know, learning more about yellow fever, malaria, typhoid, and black fever— but also there were deadly snakes that she had to learn. She had to learn all this oh, yeah. different variety of snakes, ask yeah. them what they look like, and then know which was the right anti-venom to give to people who were um, bitten. Also, she had to learn how to treat leopard bites or scratches, crocodile injuries, <laughs> as well as driver ants. Now, these driver ants, they scared me. They would go in this huge colony together, and they would eat anything that was in their way. It oh, didn't matter disturbing. what was in their way. If it was a child— and they decided they would eat the child during the night if it was a person, and they decided to make their way through that. Right. And so she had to learn how to, like, while the ants, ants were actually eating these people, how to treat and get rid of the ants. I mean, Oh, man, this is not in your typical medical no, book. No, this is yeah. like, as you would say, narnar, -nar, right? Gnarly. Nar yep. <laughs> then— um, but while she's at the Red Cross, she sees this corruption of this secular hospital. It's secular. It's not like in Bombay, which is a— you know, a Christian outstation. And the Belgian doctors cared little for their patients. In fact, they would mistreat their, their patients. And they would—she um, saw one man kick one of the patients. And Whoa. there was a grandfather there with his two granddaughters. And she went into his room, and she was like, why aren't you taking your medication? This medication will save you. You're going to die without this medication. You have to take this medication. But the grandfather informed her that the two male nurses that were looking after him told him they wouldn't give him the medication unless he let them have his granddaughters for sexual purposes. Oh, my gosh. And when Helen found that out, she was so upset. And so she went to the head doctor of the Red Cross, and he said, oh, that stuff happens all the time. You're just going to have to ignore it. And Helen's like, I— can't ignore it. These nurses need to be prosecuted. There needs to be, you know, strong and stringent yeah. rules. Yeah. And so she made sure that grandpa obviously got his medication and lived. And she said he was a very kind Christian and she was just so upset. But that's the kind of exploitation yeah. that was going on. So Helen set about to build a hospital in Mbambi and she had to mix the bricks. And remember, she's up at five. 10. She's not going to bed till 10. And somehow in her free time, she begins to mix these bricks. It's like what free time? <laughs> and help with the assembly. She'd wow. never designed anything in her life, but she's got this vision of how the hospital should look. 
and they had to braid the roof. I mean, it was a thatched roof. At the end, she had a hospital with 48 beds for women and children, another section for men with eight beds. There's so much more to that story, but for the sake of time, you're going to have to read it yourself. Yes, we encourage that. Oh, there's so many stories. One day, a man was brought to her who was cradled in a blanket and carried by poles. And she really wanted to make a good impression on the Congolese and appear like very confident and like she knew what she was doing, right? And she realized he had been speared through with a six-foot spear. And they had pulled it out, but some of it was still in him. Gosh. So Helen had no idea what to do. I mean, what do you do with a spear injury? Spear injury. I mean, all her training in London did not prepare her for no. injury with a six-foot spear. So she thought of all the vital organs that could have been pierced. And she's worried because all of his friends are there and they're watching her. As usual, she prayed hard. She said there was never a surgery, never a diagnosis that she made without praying, that Mm. she really learned in all your ways to acknowledge him and have the Lord direct her. So she hated the sight of blood and she hated doing surgery, but she had to stitch this man up. So she kind of just plugged him up and, and, you know, (laughs) looked what she could, uh, disinfected the wound and treated as best she could. And just a week later, miraculously, the man walked out of the hospital. Wow. So Helen needed help. So one day, the 16-year-old named John Mangadama comes to see her. He's just this, you know, 16-year-old kid, and he's out her door. And he said, God sent me here to see you. I want to become a doctor. And she's looking at him like, you're a kid, and you want to become a doctor. And he said, and the Lord told me, you can make me a doctor. You can help me be a doctor. Now, he met her or had seen her at the Red Cross Hospital and loved her integrity Mm -hmm. and that she really cared about the patients. And so that's how he knew. He was at that same Red Cross Hospital, but he got fired after he reported that same doctor, the Belgium doctor, Mm -hmm. um, that Helen had dealt with, kick a patient with leprosy. So he had come and he said, you know, he pledged himself to work with Helen. Then the next day, a lady showed up named Mama Damaris. Now, Mama Damaris, Helen says, you know, where are you from? She says, from hell, but I'm on my way to heaven. So John had shared the gospel with her the night before, and she got saved. And John said, oh, God told me I'm supposed to train with Helen Helen Rosemary, and I'm going to become a doctor. And she says, oh, I want to become a doctor, too. I'll go with you. Oh, my gosh. In one day. Yes. So Helen's got these, these two people. She had prayed for a team, and instead— she gets these two people who know, you know, very little, but they're willing to learn. Oh, I love the simplicity yes. of how God works. Yes. So Helen starts a training school for nurses. However, she realizes that none of her students know anything about medical instruments. Like she pulls out a stethoscope. They're like, what? She pulls out a thermometer, like, what do you use this for? So she not only has to train them how to use these, but because they're nurses, they need to learn math. They don't know math. They don't know arithmetic. They don't know decimals. So she has to teach them math, basic skills. Yes. And she realizes that she has to rewrite the whole curriculum in Swahili, in language that they can understand. So along with all the other things that she's doing, she begins to rewrite this book on training in Swahili. And she decides to take all these students on her rounds with her so that they can recognize symptoms and make the right diagnosis and prescribe the right treatment. So all her students 
take the nurse's examination in October of 1955. How many students were there at this point? I don't know. Just, but she, not just the two. There were more. Though, yeah, yeah, there, there were, were more. I, but more. there weren't okay. that many. I think okay. there were only like maybe 12. 10 or 12. Okay, or yeah. something, but they all passed with wow. the highest scores. But in 1955, orders came from the WEC that Helen was being transferred to Nebobongo, seven miles away, to set up a new medical center. Now, she didn't really want to go because she felt like her heart was invested in, in Bombay. Mm. She had been there. She had built this training school. She had built this hospital. But she didn't have a choice. And she felt like the Lord had to work on her attitude just to go to Nebobongo. And John Mangadama, her student, yeah. said, I'm going with you. <laughs> so the hospital there had once been a thriving leprosium. But now it was a maternity hospital. The leprosium had moved to a different location. But most of the hospital was covered by jungle foliage. Hmm. But Helen set out right away to restore the hospital. And she had read about George, you know, Mueller, as most English Christians had. Yes. And felt that if she started it, God would provide everything she needed and that it would just come. So thus far, all the expenses have been covered as they came up. Now, up until this time, Helen had been able to pass off the surgeries to other people, but now she is the the surgeon mm-hmm. in um, Nebo Bongo. Yes, <laughs> and one of her first patients was a pygmy woman who needed an emergency C-section, and Helen prayed and prayed, and she was so scared and concerned to do it. She even had the nurse next to her having the manual open so she could read it as she performed it because she had never done one before. Oh my gosh. The surgery itself was successful, but the mother and child died later from secondary infections. Um, Helen was so discouraged that she told the Lord, I'm never doing one again. I'm I'm not going to do one again. That was it. I told you, Lord, I'm not a surgeon. Uh, you know, I'm here for infectious diseases and other things, but I'm not a surgeon. But she didn't have time to really complain because her services were needed immediately for another cesarean. She did that one and was successful. And she never had another patient die from a C-section. Wow. Then the WEC in 1957 sent Dr. John Harris and his wife, Elsie, to Nebobongo. And Helen had been doing all the work. And again, she was like, it was too much work for her. But when it came to turn it over, because the WEC said, Dr. John Harris is now in charge because he's a, wow. he's a bona fide surgeon. You know, you're really infectious diseases and you shouldn't be doing surgery. So he's in charge of everything. And he's a man and you're a woman. Mm. And she she felt some resentment because she had written all the curriculum complete with diagrams. She had taught the students. She had organized the medicine. She had been the one who had restored and set up the hospital. And not only that, Dr. John Harris didn't like the way she was doing things. Oh, dear. He criticized it. He said, we're not doing anything until we have the money. She said, you'll never have the money. And he said, nope, God will provide the money and then we'll build. So it was a whole different philosophy. And this was really hard for her because she felt like she couldn't move forward. So they're supposed to be working together. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. But the Lord spoke to her and said she needed to give control over And the Lord really spoke to her. This is a control issue with you. Um, Helen then decided to open up clinics in the neighboring villages. And so she opened up over 48 clinics at all these different villages. And every like town that she would go to, there'd be 500 to 1,000 patients waiting for her every place that she went. So she'd be treating 
all these people. So she's going to the 48 clinics. Oh my goodness. She's did, going did, to she de- did she have anybody to delegate any of this to? No, no but John um Oh yeah, John of course. John went with her. Yeah. And they had they had a they had like a rain, a Land Rover and the back was like a little hospital. So okay, she traveling. would go and everything would be done in you know all the medicines and everything would all be in that Rover Got that it. she would take. In 1958 as you can imagine, Helen was exhausted mm. and she needed a furlough. She also had a case of amoebic dysentery. And so she was sent back to England. However, by this time, her parents were divorced. And her father was a headmaster of a school in Africa, which is hilarious because two of her uncles, her brother, and her father are now all living in different parts of Africa. Oh, wow. So Helen visited her father and his new wife, Margaret, which is a 450-mile trip. And then she drove another 750 miles to Nairobi, where she could fly back to England. Back in England, Helen stayed with her mother, and she got the medical treatment she needed. She was two weeks in the hospital getting, you know, over her illness. And at this point, Helen longed to be married. She just thought Mm. that she could serve the Lord better. And she said she really wanted it for the companionship because the decisions, she had to make sure she heard the Lord and make these decisions. You know, whether it was about the hospital or, you know, ordering medications and all these. And she just thought, Lord, I really want a man. I just think a man would be, I want the protection of a man. I want the companionship. Counsel help. And there was somebody that she was very, very interested in. Mm. And he was very, very interested in her. However, he did not want to go on the mission field. Oh, man. And she knew her calling was to the Congo. And she lingered in England, even taking um, two different positions at hospitals Mm. and, you know, getting a paycheck for the first time in her life as she worked at these hospitals. And she really liked the security of a paycheck. She liked feeling loved. She liked having this person in her life. And also, the Belgium Congo was blowing up. In November of 1959, the president of the National Congolese was arrested after two days of rioting. So this is when Belgium began to pull out their government and the Congolese began to take over. But the man who was in charge was arrested. Uh, Military law was enforced. And gatherings over five people were outlawed. And curfew was imposed after 6 p.m. until 5 a.m. the next day. Doctors were working overtime to treat all the injured. And she begins to feel like, I am so needed in the Congo. Mm. And so she's actually, she said at that point, she chooses God to be her husband over the security of having this man in her life. She like in her 30s or at this point or 40, mm. somewhere in there? Yeah. yeah. So, well, let's see. She was, <laughs> I'd have to do the math. Sorry, she's 25. <laughs> and this is 19, almost 1960. So yeah, so she's yeah, 35. So she's, mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, um, the Congo was moving toward independence from Belgium, and Helen wanted to return to the Congo. So she sailed back on May 22nd, 1960, on board her ship were two new WEC missionaries, Belle McChesney from the USA and Elaine de Russet, um, who was an Australian nurse and midwife. And she was going to be training some of the nurses. And on the voyage, Helen taught them as much Swahili as they could possibly handle. And so she gets back to Nebobongo. And the people were ecstatic to see Helen. And they, by this time, they had named her Mama Luca. So if you want to know the why, Mama was just a name of respect, mm. right? But they named her Mama Luca because in the Bible, Luke is the beloved physician. Aww. And so it was their way of saying she was their beloved physician, Mama Luca. Oh, sweet. So Dr. John Harris, who had been in charge of the hospital and his wife, they left for their furlough. 
because they were absolutely exhausted now. Right. And so she was now in charge of the hospital and all the duties. Unfortunately, the Congo was unprepared for self-government. I think that happened a lot. Yes. In those days of ending empire and Mm -hmm. all of that. And at this point, only 17 Congolese men had ever been to college because the Belgians wouldn't let them go to college. They were Mm. like, oh, you don't need it because they'd had to leave the country. The oppression had been very, very bad. Yes. And so no wonder this rebellion. Mm. And so they're totally ill-prepared to take over the government because they haven't been allowed to hold power positions or to be trained. And so um, after the Congolese were put in charge, there was a meeting at the hospital staff and a Congolese official announced that they wanted a Congolese in charge of the hospital. They called them the white people weren't allowed to run it anymore. Right. So they're just so concerned. Who's this guy that they're going to get? And they're just like, they've got this bated breath when they announced that it would be John Mangadama. And everyone was so excited because they knew he was such a good man, such a man of integrity. So on Thursday, July 15th, 1960, decisions had to be made whether to leave or stay in the Congo. And, you know, she had just gotten back. And this was just grueling for her because everybody was leaving. All the other WEC missionaries were leaving. And they they were saying, Helen, you need to leave. It's dangerous here. You shouldn't stay. They, being, they weren't being ordered out. Mm-hmm. They were just Suggested. sensing the danger. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, well, actually, the WEC had pretty much said, we want to pull our missionaries right. out. This is too dangerous to stay. And Helen prayed. And she watched as 15 missionary families left the Congo. She watched and she was just like, did I make the right decision? Um, She returned to Nebobongo after saying goodbye. And she had trouble sleeping. Every sound awakened her and got her adrenaline pumping. She prayed and said, Lord, I I can't live like this. I can't sleep like this. You've got to free me. And the next morning, Mama Damaris shows up at her house and another woman uh, named Mama Takika. And they didn't know that each other were coming. And they said, why did you come? Uh, the Lord put it on my heart. Why did you come? The Lord put it on my heart. So both had been told by God to go see Mama Luca. Later, two missionaries, Agnes Chancellor and Marjorie um, Sheverton, who had both stayed also, um, had to close their station because of the danger. And they felt that God was telling them to go stay with Helen Rosevere. And so Helen was no longer alone, which she really liked. And isn't that amazing? Like how you have to hear from the Lord individually. You can't do what everybody else. I mean, for those missionaries, maybe they were they felt called to leave. But for her and these other gals, you know, they were called to stay. And the Lord met them in that and provided. I love that. He did. Helen was the only doctor within a 200-mile radius. You can wow. understand. Wow. Then she was ordered by the government. So now she has to answer the government mm. to go to the Wamba Hospital, which was 25 miles south, two days a week. And also to go to the prison there. And she was in charge of inspecting the prison and giving out medical supplies. But here's the problem. Her medical supplies were stolen a lot. And so she had to go there almost empty-handed every week. In 1961, on her way to Wamba, she was driving alone. Usually John or somebody else, a man would accompany her, a Congolese, because they knew how dangerous it was. But this time she just had to go. And she was pulled over by a police officer on the charge of not using her right turn signal. (laughs) And she's in the middle of nowhere. And not only that, they arrested her for that because she was white. And she was harassed and slapped around for two hours in the police station 
before being released to go to the hospital in Wamba. Also in 1961, she became exhausted and she comes home from Wamba this one day and she, there's a plate of food waiting for her and it's got these plantains and some meat on it. And she's like, oh, how sweet that somebody would set out food for me. And she begins to eat and she's handing some, she has a little puppy and she's handing some to the puppy. And the next day, Helen was violently ill and she realized that she'd been poisoned and the little puppy had died in wow. the night and the puppy she'd given most of the food to and later they discovered that the plantain had been laced and soaked in a poisonous berry juice mm. and so 1962 and 63 were very very difficult years for the country and for the mission station helen's house was burglarized regularly and most of her possessions were stolen yet the hospital thrived and expanded because it was the only hospital. And Helen delivered over 500 babies that year, and nurses continued to be trained and earned their nursing diplomas. Oh, isn't that crazy? She's there to help, and yet, because she was white, mm -hmm. that's so, yeah. So, we're Tense. out of time. Oh, my and goodness. Don't you want to hear part three? Yes. We told you. We needed to do three parts for a reason, so I'm sure you understand after so, hearing that. come back next week and hear part three of Helen Rosevere. Bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnutt.